I appreciate you being here, taking the time in the middle of your day. I um, I want us to pick up where we left off in the second chapter of First John. I mentioned on Sunday that I thought this was um, one of the most significant less Bible lessons that you could teach. The reason I say that is because uh, after pastoring for I guess about 30 years, the conversation that I have in counseling most often is this conversation. Pastor, I, I, I'm just worried about whether I'm saved or not. I, I'm worried about whether my faith is, is real, it's, it's solid, it's secure. I, I had an experience when I was a child that but you know, I just I just struggle, and it, it it dawns on me sometimes the answer to that is um, no, I I don't think you're a believer. I mean, I, I think you've just been attending church for a really long time. But most of the time, the answer is listen. This is um, this is a an attack of the enemy. It's one of his favorite attacks because if you don't think that you're out of the out of the starting gate, he doesn't have to worry about you even running the race. You're stuck and preoccupied with whether you're even on the track or not as a runner. And if he can get your mind to the place where you spend all of your time praying the same prayer, and, and I know this happens. Dear Jesus, please save me. Dear Jesus, please save me. And 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 I've I've seen people pray that prayer over and over and over again for years because they've never come to a, a, a grasp of what salvation looks like. We've been taught in what I think is, I won't call it a heresy, maybe, maybe, it's at least a serious misunderstanding. We've been taught in our churches that the certainty of your salvation hinges on your ability to remember a moment in time where you prayed a prayer of salvation and God took you from death to life, from darkness to light. He justified you. And you need to remember that moment the problem with that idea is it doesn't show up anywhere in the Word of God. Never once, not Paul, not John, not Peter, not the book of Hebrews, no place in the Bible do they say, hey, be sure you can pin down a moment in time. I've heard preachers say that my whole life. In fact, I, I was in a, a, my first church years ago in West Texas. There was a new guy that came to a little country church that was in our association. And he won, he didn't win, he was awarded, uh, an, an, he was given an award at the annual associational meeting as um, the church that had the most baptisms. Awesome, I'm all in favor of baptisms, but I didn't know this guy but I knew this church was just a little old country church out kind of in the boonies. And I started kind of looking into it because I was interested. I mean, I was in a, a First Baptist church in a county seat town, and we were growing, but, but this guy had 109 baptisms in one year. 109 baptisms in one year. Now here's what was fishy about it. When the year started, he had 95 average attendance in his church. And after a year in which he baptized 109 people, they were averaging 115 in attendance. See, what he had done was he'd preached this wheat and tares kind of message that actually encourages doubt and he got all of his longtime church members to walk the aisle and he baptized them. 109 baptisms, but he only grew the church by 15 or 20 people. And our association facilitated that bad theology by giving him an award. 
Here's the thing. I don't believe in re-baptizing. Now, if you're not truly saved, I'll baptize you truly the first time because anything you did before that was just a Saturday night bath. But it's not my job to instill fear and doubt so that I can boost my statistics. It's my job to teach the Word because the Holy Spirit will either confirm your, stand, your right standing with God or He will convict you that you need to get on with business. That's my job. In this passage that we're going to read today, this, mostly in the second and third chapter, but we're going to dip into another chapter too, uh, the theme is saved beyond doubt. Remember who John is dealing with. He's dealing with church members who have been traumatized by false teachers who basically came in and said, sin is no longer a problem. We've advanced beyond that. Sin is a question of the flesh, and that doesn't impact us because we're pure spiritual beings. And then these arrogant teachers collected all the followers they could get and then went out to start their own congregation, leaving churches in Asia Minor decimated without leadership, without confidence that what they had been taught is accurate. You know, no matter what you think of somebody else, when they seem absolutely certain, it's easy to go, well, should I consider that? I mean, they seem to really know what they're talking about. Well, John wants to settle the issue of these, for these traumatized church members because they've basically been left behind with this idea you're not really saved because you're not in our group. You're not in the elite. You're not in the advanced. Trauma is not too strong a word to describe what those churches were experiencing. And so John takes it upon himself, we saw in chapter 1, to deal with the faulty claims of the false teachers. Now he's going to turn his attention to the traumatized church members and he's going to give them evidences. What he's going to say is, you're not saved just because you say you're saved. If you're saved, there's evidence. He doesn't send them back to the moment they heard the gospel, to the moment they prayed to receive Christ. He doesn't send them back to some, some misty memory in their past. His argument is basically what I want to teach today. If you're a believer, there is supernatural evidence of the faith in you on display in your life. Your assurance doesn't come from remembering that prayer when you were in third grade. Your assurance comes from seeing some things in your life today that are not natural. They're supernatural. And these supernatural evidences should be on display in the life of a believer. Now, we're not going to get lost in some sort of checklist. Yeah, I got that, I got that, I got that. Well, I got, I got five out of eight, so I must be safe. No, all of these things should be on display. If you find that some of them are, and some of them you just don't think are, um, that's where you begin to talk to the Father about seeing those things develop in you. Because they are not natural, they are supernatural. But if you go through these and go, yeah, that's sort of me sometimes and I get one or maybe two that are kind of me, that's when we need to have a conversation. I'm not here to instill doubt. I want to build assurance. But the assurance comes because the evidence is there. How do we know our tomato vines are healthy? Because they produce tomatoes. How do you know the Spirit of Christ resides in you? Because He produces supernatural evidence in your life.
All right. Let's go to 1 John chapter 2, and, uh, and we'll just start where we left off. We, uh, we did the first couple of verses. Verse 3, by this we know. Now let me stop right there. I know this is going to take a long time if we do it one word at a time. But let's talk about that word. By this we know. This is a word that, that, um, that John uses that means we know that we know. It's a Greek word that, that suggests absolute certainty. He's not just saying we have an idea or we kind of know some stuff. He's saying this is something we know. For this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. The one who says I have come to know Him and does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever follows His word in Him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, same word, by this, we know that we are in Him. The one who says that He remains in Him ought Himself also walk to walk just as He walked. Now here's, here's the first supernatural evidence of, of salvation. And you've got the outline there on your table. It is obedience. Um, as New Testament Christians... We are not weighed down by the minute details of the Old Testament law. Neither are we justified in God's sight by keeping that law. But we are confirmed by the fact that our standing before God is played out in the way that we conform to the value system that comes out of the character, the nature of God. In other words... Think about this. We, we spend a lot of time trying to draw the lines of, 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 of what our responsibilities are as Christians. Our God is simultaneously a God of freedom, but He's also a God of boundaries. He's a God of liberty, but He's also a God of limitations. His commandments are not punishments. They're not penalties to be avoided at all costs, but rather they're guidelines that help us live the life that we were meant to live. In, in suggesting that obedience is, um, is an evidence of salvation, it comes down to this. We find all the way through the New Testament, particularly in the, in the words of Jesus, uh, that you can't, it's not possible to live a red-blooded Christian life without the assistance of the Holy Spirit in us. Now you can attend church, you can, you can put on a religious facade, but over the course of a lifetime, it is impossible to advance into Christ-likeness unless we are obedient. And obedience is something that requires the Holy Spirit in us. Um, in these verses, he says... By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Now, there are people who will argue that, um, that this is a, a kind of legalism. That, that John is suggesting that, that we don't have salvation unless we keep His commandments. That's not the language, that's not, that's not the proper way to understand the Greek. John is not saying this. He's not saying uh, we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments, as though that's a conditional. We have to keep His commandments and then salvation flows. It is an evidence. It is a confirmation. Because it is not natural to live the Christian life obedient to the commands of Christ. It is not natural. In fact, it's not even possible without the presence of the Holy Spirit. Um, it says the one who does this the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever follows his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. I love that phrase. The love of God has truly been perfected. In other words, our very outlook on life is shaped by a pervasive sense of God's love. Obedience. Let me see if I can. I'm not communicating this. Think about it this way. Too many Christians think that the price of grace, 
the, that obedience to the commands of Jesus is somehow uh, a tax that God imposes on those who would receive grace. As though it's a transaction. We do the right things and God is okay with us. That is a recipe for doubt. Because here's the hitch. Without the Holy Spirit, it is impossible over the course of a lifetime to consistently do the right things according to the commands of Scripture. And when we don't have the Spirit, we, we can't possibly have the consistent evidence of obedience. Now, it is possible for a time for somebody to say, well, I need to get my life in order. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to make a New Year's resolution. I'm going to be different. Listen, how long do we joke about it? How long do New Year's resolutions last? You ever had a New Year's resolution make it out of January? No, why? Because without supernatural power in us, the ability for us to actually be different people than we are, it's just not there. We can change some habits. We can build some real severe restrictions. We can, we can, we can change the way we eat or we can, we can do whatever and, and we can be real proud of that. But, but, those, are, but, but those are physical things. I mean, you can lose weight without being a Christian. You can, you can develop the discipline and you can, you can set the boundaries. But losing physical weight is different than becoming like Christ in your nature. That can't be done on your own. It's not natural. It's supernatural. So if you have a desire to be obedient to Christ... If you come to, to His Word because you want to know what God is calling you to, you want to know what this life is that you've been invited to. When Jesus said in the Great Commission, go and make disciples, baptize them, and teach them to observe everything that I've commanded. He's given us there the recipe for the Christian life. Baptism as a public confession and identification with Jesus, and then a lifetime of obeying everything that He commanded. That's the Christian life in one verse. Lots of people can get baptized. That's a one-time event. But the proof is in the pudding. Are you obedient? And even more, do you desire to be obedient? Is Christ's likeness something that you go, oh, i got to be better? Or do you look at Jesus and say, I want what He has. I want what He promised me. This is where obedience is not a prerequisite for salvation. It's a supernatural evidence of salvation. Here's the problem with that though. Um, we have too many people who bear the name of Christ who don't even try to live a Christ-like life. When they doubt their salvation, they probably ought to doubt their salvation because there's no supernatural evidence of obedience. It's interesting that he puts obedience as the first test for us to consider. Why? Because what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your mind. Well, how do you do that? Well, we say, oh, I love God. And we just throw words out. The Bible is clear. How do you love God? The greatest commandment. Love God with all of your being. How do you do that? Practically speaking, you do it by obeying His commands. Huh. I've, got, I've got a little article here that, that I read a number of years ago. Uh, and, and, and I think this is the problem in, in the church today is we want the benefits of what we hear about, but we don't want the effort that's involved in in living the life. What people don't understand is once you have the Spirit indwelling you, there's still effort to the Christian life, but you now have a, spirit, a supernatural power that makes the Christian life for the first time possible for you. 
People get burned out. People can go to church for 30 years. I've seen deacons. I've seen deacons serve in a church for 30, 35, 40 years and then just quit. Say, I'm done. I did my part. Well, it was a good run. But they did it in their own power. It is exhausting to live the Christian life, to try and obey the commands of Christ unless the Spirit of Christ is empowering us. He calls us to a certain kind of life, but then He gives us the secret of His presence to make that life possible. And it's just not possible without His presence. This was sent to me probably 30 years ago by a, a, a pastor friend of mine. It came from some reading that he had done in Leadership Magazine. It's dated uh, 1983. I've had this in my files a long time. Let me read this to you. This is uh, this just a little paragraph. The writer says, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. You see, to come into the church it, because you see something that draws you, but you don't come all the way into Christ. That's what the entire book of Hebrews is about. The writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to a congregation of Christians of Jewish background. But some have come all the way into the Gospel. Others are still holding on to their Judaism and they like what they see here, but they haven't actually come into Christ. And the writer tells them, you can't have it both ways. You can't be outside of Christ and have all the benefits of being inside of Christ. You come all the way in. You're all in. You sell out. That's what salvation is. It is a transaction that says, here's my broken life. I trade it in for the promise of a different life that begins the moment I meet Jesus. I just can't live the Christian life. I've heard that before. You're right. You can't. But what does Paul say in Galatians? I've been crucified with Christ so that now it's not I, but Christ who lives through me. Obedience is the external expression of that salvation transformation happening inside of us. Obedience to the commands of God is not onerous. It's not... Uh, it's not a weight that we have to bear. It is evidence that He's doing something in us. Do you have the hunger to be Christ-like, to be obedient, to live the life that Scripture offers you? That's the first great commandment. That's why John starts there. But what's the second great commandment? He says the first great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. So what do you expect the second test, the second evidence of salvation to be? It's love for believers. Let's read through. I'm gonna, you see that the verses here aren't, don't cover everything, but I want to go ahead and read the whole text. Look at verse 7. He says, Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you which is true in Him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says that he is in the light and yet hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother and sister remains in the light and there is nothing in him to cause stumbling. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. He talks here in terms of light and darkness. Darkness marks character and conduct. 
light just as well is, uh, is evidence of the people of God. He says there's no stumbling. In other words, when you're trying to walk through your house, you ever tried to, to walk through your house without turning the lights on? I've lived in my house for, I don't know, 25 years. And the furniture just doesn't move very often. And yet, when I try and walk through my house in the dark, I kick, I kick something that hadn't moved in 10 years. Well, what do you need to do? You need to turn on the light, because when you turn on the light, then you don't stumble. That's, that's the Christian life. And one of the evidences of that, he says, is this, this uh, presence of love. Since the new commandment of love is the distinctive commandment of the new age or the Christian age, the test of obedience is preeminently a test of love. In other words, how do we love God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind? We obey. What do we obey? We love one another. What did Jesus say to the disciples? He said, the singular way the world will recognize you belong to me is by the love that you have for one another. You see, when we talk, why do you think the enemy of God spends so much time agitating for division and rancor and disagreement in churches? Because when a church is ugly to each other, when they have factions, when they have the, this group against that group, when they have business meetings that involve shouting matches, you know what's happening? They are putting on display to the world that there is no difference between Christians and pagans because we act exactly the same. Why? Because love for people who are different from us is not natural, it's supernatural. What he's saying here is, um, let, me, let me continue this in, in the next couple of verses. Um, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven you on account of His name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I've written to you, children, because you know the Father. I've written to you, fathers, because you know Him who has been from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and the Word of God remains in you and you have overcome the evil one. Listen, here's the thing. He's not talking about chronological age here so much as he's talking about spiritual maturity. He says there are new believers who are just now discovering how God is their Father. That's one of the great unfolding truths that a new believer finds out is the way that God loves them as a little child. He's just, he talks about senior believers here or, or mature believers as those who have come to know Christ in a fuller and deeper fashion. And then he talks to the young men. He's, he, the young men are, he, that he's speaking of have developed to the point of bearing the primary responsibility of the faith. In other words, they are the first line of defense against external persecution and also the internal uh, undermining of belief. He says they have overcome. Now think about that. Here he's given us two evidences. It's impossible to, to be obedient in a full-bodied way without the reality of salvation. In the same way, it's impossible to love other believers without the work of Christ in our lives. It's just, it's just too hard to do. I, I, I hate to break it to you, but, but none of us are really that lovable. And then he goes on to say, young men, you've overcome the evil one. He's writing to a church that's been traumatized by a false teacher, a church that's about to face serious persecution from the Roman government, in what aspect have they overcome anything? He's speaking in supernatural terms. The enemy is like a dog that's on a leash that, that barks at us like he's going to tear us to pieces. 
And yet, He's no more of a threat to us because we are in God's hands. He's no more a threat to us than that dog as long as that owner holds that leash. Here's the thing. The enemy wants us to live in fear. He wants to intimidate us. He wants to deceive us. That's why it's so important for us to be in, in a church because the love of the brothers... It, it, you ever seen those documentaries on the Discovery Channel? Uh, you know, the lions are stalking the herd of buffalo. It's always the one on the outer edge of the herd that gets captured, the one that gets eaten. Where do you want to be? You want to be in the heart of the herd. There's safety in the body of Christ as we live this life together. But here's the thing. Just like obedience, this is not natural. Here's the question. Do you love being with other believers? I mean, is, is Sunday morning, when Sunday morning arrives, is it that obligation that I got to go to church because I don't want God to zap me today? <laughs> I got to do what I got to do. Or do you wake up and say, man, today, today's the day I get to be with the people of God. I, I get to be with my family. That's not natural. That's supernatural. So what do we have so far? We have, we have your desire to obey the commands of Christ and to live the life Christ has called you to. Not natural, supernatural. You have a yearning, a heart to be with the people of God, to, to share life together with other believers. Not natural, supernatural. Evidences of salvation. Are those evidences present in you? Look at the next one. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 15, uh, I've called it godly attitudes. He says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lust. But the one who does the will of God continues to live forever. Now here's the thing. Worldliness is uh, an evidence that we walk in, our, in, in who we used to be. I mean, the, the, the natural man. But, but worldliness does not consist in the things that we do or the places we frequent. It lies in the attitudes of the heart. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, listen, you've heard it said, do not murder. They all knew that. In fact, they were proud of the fact that they could check that box. They'd never committed murder. But Jesus says, but I say unto you, if you've ever hated someone in your heart, you've already committed murder. Why would he say that? Because the point that he's making is, it's always, from God's perspective, been a heart issue. Sin and righteousness are both simply external expressions of what's in a heart. He says, you heard that you're not supposed to commit adultery. They were very proud of themselves because they could check that box. They'd never committed adultery. But he said, but I'm telling you, if you've ever lusted after someone in your heart, you've already broken that commandment. Why? Because it's a heart issue. Worldliness, we take great pride in the fact that we haven't done certain things. But you know, your heart can be completely worldly. And your behavior can look just as respectable as can be. Because what you do is you say, man, I would love to go do that. But I'm, I'm, I'm so righteous and I want everybody to see that I don't do that thing. No, a heart that's being transformed supernaturally begins to have an aversion to sin. We look at that temptation, the closer we get to Jesus, the more the temptations that the enemy puts in front of us, the more they... They, they're not only not attractive, but, but they, they, they push us away. We, we don't want anything to do with them. You can take great pride and say, well, I don't do that. Or you can say, I don't want to be anywhere close. I, I used to teach teenagers, and, uh, and one of the standard questions, they always would love to talk about dating and marriage and and, and sexual behavior and those kind of issues. That's a, 
That's a big topic with teenagers. And the question was always, how, I mean, they wouldn't word it this way, but, but we would get around to it. How close to the line can I get before I've crossed over into something sinful? And I was like, well, um, I don't know. But I know that if your desire is to be like Jesus, the question becomes, how far away from sin can I get? Flee immorality. The Bible doesn't say toy with it. The Bible doesn't say, well, get up close to it and, and prove how, how strong you are against that. You know, Mahatma Gandhi was Hindu. Um, he used to sleep in his elder years. He used to sleep um, with young women who were uncovered, if you will, because he said he was displaying the discipline that comes with a mind devoted to truth. In other words, he put himself in a position of temptation to show how strong he was against temptation. Well, that may work in Hinduism, but you know what the Bible calls it? The Bible calls that stupid. <laughs> I can show you the Hebrew word. <laughs> what we have here is uh, a call not just to not do certain things, but to actually have godly attitudes. In fact, this verse you've heard before, he says, um, let me see if I can find, oh, verse 16, for all that is in the world, meaning all those things that are, that are beyond the, the call that we've been given in Christ, all the things that are in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father. Think about that. The lust of the flesh are natural appetites that we have as human beings, but they're allowed to, to um, crave sin beyond restraint. I'll give you an example in just a minute. Lust of the eyes, that's the inclination to covet what we see. In other words, it is a move toward discontentment. There's a reason that advertising packages whatever product they're trying to sell so visually attractive. Because they know that the eyes are, the, are where they get discontentment. And if they can create discontentment in us, then we go buy that product because the unspoken promise is this product gives you the contentment that you yearn for. That's the lust of the eyes. The pride of life. The boastful pride of life. It's translated in, in other Bibles, the pride of one's lifestyle. That is the natural tendency to make surface comparisons with other people so that you can be self-justified. Let me give you an example. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Eve standing in front of a forbidden tree, and this is what it tells us. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, hmm, the lust of the flesh, she needed to eat. I mean, food is a, a, a good thing. God provided it. But she allowed the natural craving to eat to have an unrestrained pursuit of something that was out of bounds. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, it had an appeal, an attractiveness. In fact, as she looked at it, she wanted it. It was an expression of discontentment. She had everything else in the garden, but she saw that and it made her want something that she didn't have. It's like the, the uh, reporter generations ago that asked John D. Rockefeller, at that time probably the wealthiest man on the planet, Mr. Rockefeller, how many dollars is enough? And his answer was, one more. How much can we have and yet our eyes pursue something that creates a discontent and we want something else beyond what God has given us? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. Oh, then this verse says, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. That's the pride of life. She wanted to be somebody. She wanted to be wise. In fact, part of the temptation was that the enemy, the serpent had said, when you eat, you'll be like God. She wanted to have, she wanted to, to have a life that, 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 that was beyond what God had offered her. As though 
there's something better than God's offer. It's the definition of mistrust that God has given us the promise of everything that He's given us, and yet we say, well, but you know, that's not enough. I want something else. These kind of attitudes, godly attitudes, here's my catchphrase, they're not natural. They're supernatural. We've got obedience, love of the brothers. Now we have the way we think. Paul says take every thought captive for Christ. That is something only available with the Holy Spirit. All right, number four, open confession. All right, look, in, look back in 1 John. Verse, um, verse, let's go, verse 20. We'll start with verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar except the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. The one who denies the Father and the Son. You know, John is the only writer in the New Testament that uses the word antichrist. Uh, in, in, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul refers to the same character, but he calls him the man of lawlessness. In, in the Olivet Discourse, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus refers to this same character, but he calls him the abomination of desolation. John's the only one that uses the word, but the idea is all the way through Scripture. It is somebody who embodies the very opposite of Jesus. And, and there is one Antichrist in the last day. But anybody in that, in that mode, anyone who embodies opposition to Christ, is with a little a, <laughs> a, a, a lowercase a, an Antichrist. He's told them, um, he said here, um, I'm not telling you something that you don't know because you do know it. No lies of the truth. Who is the liar except the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? Remember about those false teachers? They were making a distinction between Jesus, the physical man, and Christ, the spiritual being. He said, no, 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 no. Jesus is Christ. Verse 23, Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. Remember yesterday in my, in my sermon from 1 Peter, we talked about the word confess. Was that in 1 Peter or was that last night? I can't remember. The word confess means to say the same thing about God. The negative of confession is to say the same thing that God says about our sin. To agree with God in evaluating our behavior. But there's a flip side of that, which is to say the same thing about Jesus that God says about Jesus. He is the Son. He is perfect. He is my Son with whom I am well pleased. To confess Jesus openly is not natural. It is supernatural. When there are people who say, I've been a Christian a long time, but I'm just not comfortable talking to people about Jesus. I say, are you comfortable talking to people about anything else? Oh yeah, I, I, I can have conversation. Well, then I don't understand. Because if we're following the commandments, if we love the brothers, if we're taking every thought captive so that we have godly attitudes, why is the conversation about Jesus that involves my open and public identification with Him, why is that a problem? It is an evidence of salvation. I want to be seen even in the face of opposition i want to be seen as a follower of jesus it's not something i hide it's not something i, I keep on the down low because the, the the spirit that lives in me what is the primary role of the holy spirit to testify to christ so when the spirit takes up residence in me what do you think happens i should have a, 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 an affinity for testifying to christ Open confession. When is the last time you talked to somebody about Jesus? I'm not talking about a canned gospel presentation. I'm talking about a normal everyday conversation where you just talk about what God is doing in your life, what Jesus has done for you, and you openly identify by accepting that affiliation. It's okay for people to know that we're Christians. In fact, 
It's a supernatural evidence that we're Christians. Let's jump over to chapter 3. In chapter 3, um, look at verse 6. This is the next one that I've given you. Uh, avoids habitual sins. Verse 6 of chapter 3 says, No one who remains in him sins continually. No one who sins continually has seen him or knows him. Now, depending on what version you're using, you may say, well, the, the word continually is not there. The Greek actually does just say, no one who remains in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. That has created a lot of confusion in this verse because people take that as a standalone verse and they say, well, is John telling me that as a Christian, I should never sin? See, that's what the, where the enemy misinterprets Scripture the same way he did in the Garden of Eden when he said to Eve, did God really say that? What the devil does is he loves to take this verse and say, well, you've sinned. I mean, you know that you're not perfect, so you can't possibly be a Christian because it says right there that a Christian doesn't sin. This is actually the insertion of the word continually actually is a way to capture in English what the Greek word means. It means continually or habitually. In other words, what John is saying here is no one who remains in Him, no one who abides in Christ makes a habit of sin. Part of being in the light is putting Christ on display. However imperfectly we may do that. But part of being in the darkness is putting a consistent lifestyle of sin on display. We're going to sin. I mean, we know we're going to sin because in the first chapter, John's already told us. He said, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. He's given us a promise. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He said in the second chapter that when we sin, we have an advocate before the Father. Our case is not hopeless. But then here He says, I'm not talking about isolated errors that come from neglect or bad choices because we, we've allowed ourselves to, to be distracted. We've, we've pursued something worldly. He says, I'm talking about a habitual habit of... Uh, uh, that, that's redundant. Uh, a, a continual lifestyle of sin. Well, what does that look like? Well, when sin is not something you avoid, but something you plan. Now think through that. It's one thing to, we use this language, it's one thing to fall into error. It's another thing to say, I want that and i got to figure out how to get it so that nobody knows I'm doing it. That is a dangerous place to be because that indicates something natural. What he's saying here is something supernatural. Look at verse 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who has been born of God practices sin because his seed remains in him and he cannot sin continually because he's been born of God. It's an evidence of salvation when you don't want a habitual lifestyle of unrighteousness. Now when he says the one who practices righteousness is righteous, he's not suggesting that your good works make you acceptable to God. He's saying the good works are evidence that prove you're acceptable to God in the same way that hidden sin proves just the opposite. Now this is where we, I don't really have time to, to, to go into any more detail here, but I want to say this is really the one that gets us. Because when you come to me and say, I'm doubting my salvation, pretty quickly we're going to get to the question of secret sin. Because when we don't act like Jesus, 
then we don't feel like we're in Jesus. Part of the answer here is to choose not to practice sin, but the opposite, to practice righteousness. You want to feel saved? Then act saved. Now, you can't act saved, not for very long, unless you are saved. But if the Holy Spirit is in you, part of the reason when people come to me and say, I'm just, you know, I'm just doubting my salvation. We get to the question of sin, and I say, does that bother you? And I have this all the time. I've had people confess their secret sins to me that nobody else they think knows about. And they'll tell me what they're doing, and they'll go, I'm so glad somebody knows. You know, there's a reason the Bible says for us to confess our sins to one another. In the relationships that we share as we do life together, secrecy is the devil's tool. And he will get you trapped in a place where you are living a double life. And confession, not only to God, but to another person, steals the appeal of that sin. Listen, pornography is the classic example. Statistics tell us that something like 80% of the church in, in, in this generation uh, is plagued by pornography. Now, there's no way to prove those numbers, and I don't know, but I do know this. In our church, as we have walked people through this process, the accountability of the body and the openness of confession that takes sin out of the realm of the secret is the key to, to, um, to avoiding habitual sins. Well, number six, the avoidance of habitual sins is followed by intentional good works. Uh, chapter 3, verses 18 and 19. It says here, Little children, let's not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will set our heart at ease before Him. That is, this idea of good works, not to create salvation, not to get us saved, but as evidence of salvation, um, it flows out of Christ's sacrifice. We have an obligation to love other people in practical ways. The only place that assurance is needed is in the presence of God. And, and, and the Bible tells us that as we treat other people as God would treat them, as we are the hands and feet of Jesus in our generation, we put God on display in a, remark, in a remarkable way. I, I read a quote some years ago that, that I've tried to remember. Uh, the quote said, Loving everybody in general is often an excuse for not loving anybody in particular. Oh, I just, I just love the world. Yeah? Well, who have you actually helped lately? You see, one of the evidences of salvation is not just this mushy, sentimental talk about love, but the, the rubber meets the road, I've been inconvenienced in my schedule, I've been put out by the needs of somebody else kind of love that says, I need to meet that need. I've given something that I had because somebody else needed it more. I've changed my schedule to accommodate the needs of somebody else. I've put myself out, not so that I can be proud of myself, but because it's what Jesus would do. Jesus was always open to interruption. And yet we find ourselves saying, well... You know, I didn't really have that. I don't. I had my, my my day's pretty full. I've kind of got my to do list today. Listen, one of the things I had to learn a long time ago as a pastor is your to do list better be flexible, because God doesn't always tell you what's on His to do list for your day until it shows up. The pastor that I served with a number of years ago in in Texas, I was on his staff. Uh, he told the story of preparing on Saturday morning. He was finishing his sermon for Sunday. The Sermon on the Good Samaritan. And at his house, he was in his, his study at home, he heard a knock on the door and he ignored it because he was busy. And, and finally, he knocked again and he went up and kind of peeked out the window 
and it was clearly somebody that was down on their luck and they were probably going to ask for some kind of help. And, and he went back to his study and he was like, I, I, I just don't have time for that. And he said, unmistakably, the Spirit confronted him and said, yeah, you don't have time to help anybody because you're writing a sermon on the Good Samaritan. <laughs> okay. And he went out and he did what God had given him the opportunity to do. When was the last time you helped somebody in a practical way? You allowed yourself to be inconvenienced because you were being the hands and feet of Jesus. Listen, in our culture, I'm telling you, that is not natural. That is supernatural. Well, the final two are in chapter 5. Flip over and, and we'll do those real quickly. In chapter 5, uh, I don't want to skip them. In chapter 5, beginning in verse 9, and we'll, we'll cover chapter 5 in a little more detail tomorrow. But in verse 9, uh, I've listed the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. Verse 9 says, If we receive the testimony of people, the testimony of God is greater. The testimony of God is this, that He has testified concerning His Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning His Son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and His life is in His Son. The one who has the Son has the life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Here's the thing. I, I, this is not right up front because, because John is giving us very practical ways to evaluate our standing with God. Are we obedient? Do we love being with the believers? Do we take every thought captive so we, have, so we practice godly attitudes? Are we unashamed to make open confession of our identification with Jesus? Are we pursuing a life of holiness and avoiding those sins that would trap us into bad habits? Are we intentional about good works towards other people? But then he finally comes to this. Oh, and there's another thing. God will give you a witness of His Spirit in your heart. I've had people come to me and say, you know, I just don't feel like a Christian. Well, we eventually get to the sin issue and, and we have to deal with that. And there's repentance and there's cleansing and, and, and they'll say, but, but, I, but, but how do I know it worked? Because God is not a liar. And He said, this is what I will do. And His testimony in you is that you believe what He said about the Son and by accepting God's testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, you accept that truth into your life. The Holy Spirit takes up residence and there comes into your life an inner confirmation of His presence. Now, sin is what squelches that. But we deal with hidden sin, we repent, and guess what? It's remarkable. All of a sudden, we start to feel like we're saved. We act like we're saved, and then we feel like we're saved. Well, finally, verse 14 and 15. It says, This is the confidence which we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. In other words, answered prayer. We have this confidence. Why? Because we have taken needs for ourselves or for somebody else and we've laid them before the throne and God has responded. What He's promising here, and this is a, a kind of a cool way to put it, what He's promising is that because we are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, because we are invited into the presence of God at any moment, we have freedom of speech in the presence of the Creator of the universe. Think about that. We bring those needs, those issues, those struggles before God, and He says when we pray according to His presence, 
then we are guaranteed that we will have, according to His will, then we are guaranteed that we will have what He asks. Here's the thing. There's one other verse I want to read to you, and we'll wrap up. If you, if you don't have, if you can't point to answered prayer in your life, it's related to one of two things. It's related to the fact that you're not praying. That's the most common reason. The Bible says um, you don't have. Why? Because you don't ask. We treat God the way that the wife treats the husband in, the, in all those jokes where he says, are you mad at me? And she says, well, if you don't know, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> we want God to just sort of take, take care of things. We knew when we were raising children, we knew what to buy at Christmas time because every time they saw a commercial on TV for a toy, they wanted that toy. Every time. We want that. I want that for Christmas. I want that for Christmas. But there were only one or two toys that would come up again and again. Sure, when they saw the commercial on TV, they wanted what they were looking at. But when they weren't connected to TV, when they were just on their own, there would be one or two things that they would talk about regularly. And we knew that's what they really wanted. Well, sure enough, what he says here is, it's not enough for you to just say, well, God knows everything and He'll just handle it. What does God want? He wants us to ask because in order to ask, we have to spend time in His presence. What does every parent want? They want time with the children that they love. They don't want to be taken for granted. They don't want to be an ATM machine that is expected to just spit out support. They want time. God wants that too. Answered prayer is when we come to God and lay out those things that we need. But answered prayer comes when we've aligned our prayers with the will of God. And you say, well, if it's God's will, why do I need to pray? Not to change God's will. You need to pray so that you know you're lined up with God's will. I pray for a lot of things and God goes, yeah, you, tinker with that a little bit. <laughs> And over time, as, as the tinkering, I find myself in that sweet spot and God goes right there. That's what I have for you and I'm going to answer because that's my will. See, God didn't change, but I had to get in, into alignment. Now, all of this, you say, well, well, these supernatural evidences, can I point to love for the, for the brothers? Uh, uh, am I obedient? Do I have godly attitudes? Am I unashamed to confess Christ? Do I try and avoid sin? Do I intentionally pursue good works? Do I have that, that, that testimony of the Spirit in me? Am I, can I point to answered prayers from what God has done? You look at that and you go, well, that doesn't seem to be all that complicated. Notice there's not one place in here where he says, did you pray a prayer when you were eight years old? The evidence of your salvation ought to be evident today in the life that you're living. But here's why this is not, this is why this is, is so um, this, this is so, people are so unaware of this. I love this verse. Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. When you say, you know, I'm not very smart. I'm not very wise. I don't have a great grasp of the Word of God yet. Notice I say yet. You know what God says? He says, once you know how unsmart you are, then you're ready for me to do something in your life. Until you get past being impressed with yourself, I can't use you. But when you say, Lord, just do in me what you want. Help me to understand. If there are any of these that you don't, that you don't have, say, I, 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 I struggle with, with open confession. Ask God to give you strength for that. Well, I, I don't always feel that internal witness. Ask God to give you that. 
You know something? It is not God's will for you to be in doubt about your salvation. Well, what did he just tell us about prayer? If we ask anything that's in God's will, we can be assured that we'll have the answer to that. Well, if it is God's will for us to be bold because we know who we are in Christ, ask for that certainty. And God will give it. But He won't give it by just saying, patting us on the head and saying, yes, you're one of mine. He will give us assurance by taking these supernatural evidences and working them out through our lives. And as you look for these, that's where you go, wow, I would never do that on my own. That must be Christ who is living His life through me. I apologize for running over, but this is just too good to cut short. Let's say a prayer. Father, thank You so much for Your Word, for this promise of certainty and assurance, for security in our faith. Lord, You have, uh, you have given us confidence and, and assurance that, that once we are in Your hands, that no one can take us out of Your hands. But Father, it's nice for John to outline for us the evidences that we can point to and we can see even when we're emotionally uh, exhausted, when we're mentally tired, when we're physically not at our best, we can still point to evidence and say, that is not me, that is Jesus in me. And with that confidence, we look at the enemy who tries to bring doubt and we resist him and he flees. Thank you, Father, for these words from 1 John. Bless us as we continue this study. In Jesus' name, amen.